Chapter 33 of The Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 33 Rich, beautiful, and of illustrious birth, I was married at twenty to Count Christian, who was already more than forty. He might have been my father, and he inspired me with affection and respect, but not with love. I have been educated in ignorance of what such a feeling may be in the life of a woman. My parents, austere Lutherans, but compelled to practice their worship as secretly as possible, had in their habits and in their ideas an excessive strictness and a great strength of mind, their extravagant hatred of foreigners, their inward revolt against the religious and political yoke of Austria, their fanatical attachment to the ancient liberties of their country, had passed into my bosom, and these passions sufficed for my proud youth. I did not suspect that they were others, and my mother, who had never known aught besides duty, would have thought she committed a crime had she permitted me to imagine them. The Emperor Charles, Maria Theresa's father, persecuted my family for a long while on account of heresy and set a price upon our fortune, our liberty, and almost upon our lives. I could ransom my parents by marrying a Catholic lord devoted to the empire, and I sacrificed myself with a kind of enthusiastic pride. From among those who were designated to me, I chose Count Christian because his character, gentle, conciliating, and even weak in appearance, gave me hopes of secretly converting him to the political ideas of my family. My family accepted my devotedness and blessed it. I thought that I should be happy from virtue, but the unhappiness of which we understand the extent and feel the injustice is not a medium in which the soul can easily be developed. I soon discovered that the wise and calm Christian concealed under his precise and benevolent gentleness an invincible obstinacy, a bigoted attachment to the customs of his caste and to the prejudices of his neighborhood, a kind of merciful hatred and of sorrowful contempt for every idea of combat and resistance to established things. His sister Wenceslawa, tender, watchful, generous, but bound even more than he to the minutiae of her devotion and the pride of her rank, was to me a companion both sweet and bitter, a caressing but overpowering tyrant, a friend devoted but irritating to the last degree. I suffered mortally at the absence of sympathizing and intellectual connection with beings whom I nevertheless loved but the contact with whom killed me, whose atmosphere slowly wasted me. You know the history of Albert's youth, his suppressed enthusiasm, his misunderstood religion, his evangelical ideas accused of heresy and madness. My life was a prelude to his, and you must have sometimes heard uttered in the family of Rudolstadt exclamations of terror and of sorrow at that fatal resemblance between the son and the mother, 
in mind as well as in body. The absence of love was the greatest evil in my life, and from that flowed all the others. I loved Christian with a strong friendship, but nothing in him could inspire me with enthusiasm, and an enthusiastic affection would have been necessary to repress the profound disunion of our understandings. The religious and severe education I had received did not permit me to separate understanding from love. I devoured myself. My health became affected. An extraordinary excitement seized upon my nervous system. I had hallucinations, ecstasies which were called attacks of madness, and which they concealed with care instead of trying to cure. Still, they tried to divert me and to carry me into the world as if balls, performances, and feasts could supply to me the want of sympathy, of love, and of confidence. I felt so ill at Vienna that I was carried back to Giant's Castle. I preferred even that dull abode, the exorcisms of the chaplain and the cruel friendship of the canoness, to the court of our tyrants. The consecutive loss of my five children gave me the final blow. It seemed to me that heaven had cursed my marriage. I desired death with fervor. I had no more hope in life. I strove not to love Albert, my last born, persuaded that he was condemned like the others and that all my cares could not save him. A last misfortune brought the exasperation of my faculties to its height. I loved, I was beloved, and the austerity of my principles constrained me to stifle in my bosom even the inward confession of that terrible feeling. The physician who attended me in my frequent and painful crises was less young in appearance and not so handsome as Christian. It was not, therefore, the graces of his person which affected me, but the profound sympathy of our minds, the conformity of our ideas, or at least of our religious and philosophical instincts, an incredible resemblance of characters. Marcus, I can indicate him to you only by that name, had the same energy, the same activity of mind, the same patriotism as myself. Of him could be said, as well as of me, what Shakespeare has put in the mouth of Brutus. I am not of those who bear injustice with a smiling face. The misery and degradation of the poor served them. The despotic laws and their monstrous abuses, all the impious rites of conquest excited in him tempests of indignation. Oh, what torrents of tears we have shed together over the sufferings of our country and those of the human race, everywhere enslaved or cheated, here brutified by ignorance, there decimated by the rapacity of the avaricious, elsewhere violated and degraded by the ravages of war, debased and unfortunate over the whole face of the earth. Still, Marcus, more learned than I, conceived a remedy for all these evils, and often conversed with me respecting strange and mysterious projects for organizing a universal conspiracy against despotism and intolerance. I listened to his designs as to romantic dreams. I could not hope. I was too ill and too much broken to believe in the future. He loved me ardently. I saw it. I felt it. I shared his passion. And yet, 
During five years of apparent friendship and chaste intimacy, we did not once reveal to each other the fatal secret which united us. He did not usually dwell in the Burma vault. At least he was frequently absent from that region under pretext of going to attend upon distant patients, but in fact for the purpose of organizing that conspiracy, of which he incessantly spoke to me, without being able to persuade me of its results. Each time that I again saw him, I felt more inflamed by his genius, his courage, and his perseverance. Each time that he returned, he found me more weakened, more devoured by an inward fire, more wasted by physical suffering. During one of those absences, I had horrible convulsions, to which the ignorant and conceited Dr. Wetzelius, whom you know, and who attended me in the absence of Marcus, gave the name of malignant fever. After the crisis, I fell into a state of complete prostration, which was taken for death. My pulse did not beat. My respiration was insensible. Still, I had all my consciousness. I heard the prayers of the chaplain and the tears of my family. I heard the heart-rending cries of my only child, of my poor Albert, and I could not make a motion. I could not even see. My eyes had been closed. It was impossible for me to open them. I asked myself if this was death, and if the soul, deprived of its means of action upon the corpse, preserved in its decease the sorrows of life and the horror of the tomb. I heard terrible things around my bed of death. The chaplain, endeavoring to calm the strong and sincere regret of the canoness, told her that it was necessary to thank God for all things, and that it was a great happiness for my husband to be delivered from the anguish of my continual agony and from the storms of my reprobate soul. He did not use quite such harsh words, but the meaning was the same, and the canoness listened to him and by degrees assented. I even heard him afterwards try to console Christian by the same arguments, rather more softened in expression, but quite as cruel to me. I heard distinctly, I understood frightfully. It was, thought they, the will of God that I should not bring up my son, and that he should be withdrawn in his tender years from the poison of the heresy with which I was infected. This was what they found to say to my husband when he cried, pressing Albert to his bosom. Poor child, what will become of thee without thy mother? The reply of the chaplain was, You will educate him according to the will of God. Finally, after three days of motionless and mute despair, I was carried to the tomb, without having recovered strength to make a movement, without having lost for an instant the certainty of the horrible death to which they were about to condemn me. I was covered with diamonds. I was dressed in my wedding garments, that magnificent costume in which you saw me in my portrait. A crown of flowers was placed upon my head, a crucifix of gold upon my chest, and I was deposited in a long coffin of white marble, cut in the subterranean pavement of the chapel. I felt neither the cold nor the want of air. I lived only in thought. Marcus arrived an hour after, his consternation took from him all reflection. He came mechanically to prostrate himself upon my tomb. He was torn from it. He returned in the night. 
This time he was provided with a hammer and a lever. An ominous idea had crossed his mind. He knew my lethargic crises. He had never seen them so long, so complete, but from some instance of that strange state before observed by him. He imagined the possibility of a frightful error. He had no faith in the science of Witzelius. I heard him walking above my head. I recognized his step. The clang of the iron which raised the stone made me shudder, but I could not utter a cry, a groan. When he raised the veil which covered my face, I was so exhausted by the efforts I had made to call him that I seemed more dead than ever. He hesitated for a long while. He interrogated a thousand times my extinguished breath, my frozen heart and hands. I had all the stiffness of a corpse. I heard a murmur in a heart-rending voice. It is done then. No more hope. Dead, dead, oh Wanda. He let the veil fall again, but he did not replace the stone. A horrible silence once more prevailed. Had he fainted? Would he abandon me? He also, forgetting, in the horror inspired by the sight of what he had loved, to close my sepulchre? Marcus, plunged in a gloomy meditation, formed a project dismal as his sorrow, strange as his character. He wished to save my body from the ravages of destruction. He wished to carry it away secretly, to embalm it, to seal it in a metal coffin and keep it always by his side. He asked himself if he would have so much courage, and suddenly, in a kind of fanatic transport, he said that he would. He took me in his arms, and without knowing if his strength would permit him to carry a dead body so far as his dwelling, which was more than a league distant, he laid me upon the pavement and replaced the stone with that terrible sang-froid, which often accompanies acts of delirium. Then he wrapped me up and hid me entirely under his cloak and left the chateau, which was not then closed with the same care as now, because the bands of malefactors rendered desperate by the war had not yet shown themselves in the environs. I had become so thin that I was not, to tell the truth, a very heavy burden. Marcus crossed the woods, choosing the least frequented paths. He deposited me several times upon the rocks, overpowered by sorrow and dismay more than by fatigue. He has told me since that more than once he felt a horror of this theft of a dead body and was tempted to carry me back to my tomb. At last he reached his dwelling, penetrated without noise through his garden, and carried me, without being seen by anyone, into an isolated pavilion which he used as a private study. It was there only that the joy of seeing myself saved, the first feeling of joy I had had for ten years, unbound my tongue, and I was able to articulate a feeble exclamation. A new and violent crisis followed the lethargy. I suddenly recovered an exuberant strength. I uttered cries, groans. Marcus's maidservant and gardener ran towards the pavilion, thinking that someone was assassinating him. He had the presence of mind to throw himself before them, saying that a lady had come there to be secretly confined, and that he would kill anyone who attempted to see her, as he would discharge whomsoever said a word about the matter. This feint succeeded. 
I was dangerously ill in the pavilion for three days. Marcus shut up with me, attended me with a zeal and an intelligence worthy of his will. When I was saved and could collect my ideas, I threw myself into his arms with terror at the thought that we should be obliged to separate. Oh, Marcus, cried I, why did you not let me die here in your arms? If you love me, kill me. To return to my family is worse than death to me. Madam, replied he with firmness, you never shall return there. I have made an oath to God and to myself. You henceforth belong only to me. You will not leave me again, or you will go hence only over my dead body. This terrible resolution shocked and charmed me at the same moment. I was too much troubled and too weak to perceive its extent. I listened to it with the at once timid and confiding submission of a child. I allowed myself to be nursed, cured, and by degrees accustomed myself to the idea of never returning to Riesenberg and of never contradicting the appearances of my death. Marcus displayed an exalted eloquence to convince me. He told me that I could not live in that marriage and that I had no right to go to certain death. He swore to me that he had the means of withdrawing me from the sight of men for a long time and for my whole life from that of persons who knew me. He promised me that he would watch over my son and provide a way for me to see him in secret. He even gave me sure pledges of these strange possibilities, and I allowed myself to be convinced. I consented to depart with them and never again to become the Countess de Rudolstadt. But at the moment when we were about to depart, Marcus was sent for to attend Albert, who was said to be dangerously ill. Maternal tenderness, which unhappiness seemed to have stifled, was reawakened in my bosom. I wished to follow Marcus to Riesenberg. No human power, not even his, could have dissuaded me. I entered his carriage and, enveloped in a long veil, waited with anxiety at some distance from the chateau for him to go and see my son and bring me news of him. He soon returned, in fact, assured me that the child was not in danger and wished to reconduct me to his house and afterwards return and pass the night with Albert. I could not resolve to do this. I wished still to wait for him, hidden behind the dark walls of the chateau, trembling and agitated while he returned to take care of my son. I was hardly alone when a thousand anxieties consumed my heart. I imagined that Marcus concealed from me the real situation of Albert, that perhaps he was dying, that he would expire without receiving my last kiss. Overcome by this fatal persuasion, I rushed through the porch of the chateau. A servant, whom I met in the court, let fall his torch and fled crossing himself. My veil hid my features, but the appearance of a woman in the middle of the night was enough to awaken the superstitious ideas of those credulous domestics. They had no doubt that I was the ghost of the unhappy and impious Countess Wanda. An unexpected chance allowed me to penetrate to my son's chamber without meeting any other persons, and the canoness had fortunately gone out for that moment to get some medicine prescribed by Marcus. My husband, according to his custom, 
had gone to pray in his oratory instead of acting to avert the danger. I precipitated myself upon my son. I pressed him to my bosom. He was not afraid of me. He returned my caresses. He had not comprehended my death. At this moment the chaplain appeared upon the threshold of the chamber. Marcus thought that all was lost. Still, with a rare presence of mind, he remained motionless and appeared not to see me beside him. The chaplain pronounced, with an interrupted voice, some words of exorcism, and fainted away before he had dared to make a step towards me. Then I resigned myself to ply by another door, and I regained in the darkness the place where Marcus had left me. I was reassured. I had seen Albert relieved. His little hands were moist, and the fire of the fever was no longer on his cheeks. The fainting and the terror of the chaplain were attributed to a vision. He insisted that he had seen me beside Marcus, holding Albert in my arms. Marcus insisted that he had seen nothing. Albert had gone to sleep, but on the next day he again asked for me, and the following nights, convinced that I had not fallen asleep forever, as they endeavored to persuade him, he dreamt of me, thought he saw me again, and called me several times. From that moment, Albert's childhood was closely watched, and the superstitious souls of Riesenberg made abundance of prayers to drive the fatal assiduities of my phantom from around his cradle. Marcus reconducted me to his house before day. We put off our departure for a week longer, and when my son was entirely reestablished, we left Bohemia. Since that time, I have led a wandering and mysterious life, always concealed at my resting places, always veiled in my journeys, bearing a false name, and having for a long while no other confidant in the world but Marcus. I passed several years with him in foreign countries. He maintained a constant correspondence with a friend who kept him informed of all that took place at Riesenberg and who gave him ample details respecting the health, the character, and the education of my son. The deplorable state of my health authorized me to lead the most retired life and to see no one. I passed with the sister of Marcus and lived several years in the interior of Italy in an isolated villa while for a part of each year, Marcus continued his journeys and pursued the accomplishment of his vast projects. I was not the mistress of Marcus. I had remained under the empire of my religious scruples, and I required more than ten years of meditation to conceive the right of human beings to shake off the yoke of the laws, without pity and without intelligence, which govern human society. Being considered dead, and not wishing to risk the liberty I had so dearly bought, I could not invoke any civil or religious power to break my marriage with Christian, and I could not desire, moreover, to reawaken his sleeping sorrows. He knew not how unhappy I had been with him. He believed that, for my happiness and for the peace of his family, and for the salvation of his son, I had descended to the repose of the tomb. In this situation, I looked upon myself as eternally condemned to be faithful to him. Afterwards, when by the exertions of Marcus, the disciples of a new faith had united and secretly constituted themselves a religious power, 
when I had modified my ideas sufficiently to accept this new council and to enter this new church, which could have pronounced my divorce and consecrated our union, it was no longer time. Marcus, fatigued by my obstinacy, had felt the necessity of loving elsewhere, and I had heroically impelled him to it. He was married. I was the friend of his wife. Still, he was not happy. That wife had not a mind and heart sufficiently great to satisfy the mind and heart of a man like him. He had not been able to make her understand his plans. He was careful not to inform her of his success. She died after some years, without having imagined that Marcus still loved me. I nursed her in her last illness. I closed her eyes without having any reproach to make against myself respecting her, without rejoicing at the removal of this obstacle to my long and cruel passion. My youth had departed. I was broken. I had led too grave and too austere a life to change when age began to bleach my hair. I entered at last into the calmness of old age, and I felt deeply all that there is august and holy in that phase of our woman's life. Yes, our old age, like our whole life, when we understand it aright, is something much more serious than that of men. They can cheat the course of years. They can still love and become parents at a more advanced age than we. While nature marks for us a bound beyond which there is something monstrous and impious in the wish to reawaken love and to encroach by ridiculous transports upon the brilliant privileges of the generation which already succeeds and effaces us. The lessons and the examples which it expects from us in that solemn moment require, moreover, a life of contemplation and of concentration which the agitations of love would fruitlessly disturb. Youth can be inspired by its own ardor and find therein high revelations. Ripe age has no longer any commerce with God, but in the august serenity which is granted to it as a last benefit. God himself gently aids us by an insensible transformation to enter upon that path. He takes care to calm our passions and to change them into peaceful friendships. He takes from us the fascination of beauty, thus withdrawing us from dangerous temptations. Nothing, then, is so easy as to grow old. Whatever may say and whatever may think about it, those women diseased in mind, whom we see move about in the world, victims to a kind of fury, obstinate to conceal from others and from themselves the diminution of their charms and the termination of their mission as women. What? Age takes from us our sex. It frees us from the terrible labors of maternity, and we do not recognize that this is the moment to raise ourselves to a kind of angelic state. But, my dear daughter, you are so far from that bound, fearful and yet desirable as a port against a tempest, that all my reflections on this subject are out of place. Let them therefore only be of use to you to understand my history. I remained what I had always been, the sister of Marcus, and those repressed emotions, that conquered love which had tortured our youth, gave at least to the friendship of riper age a character of strength and of enthusiastic confidence which is not to be found in common friendships. 
I have as yet told you nothing, moreover, of the mental labors and the important occupations which, during the first fifteen years, prevented us from being absorbed by our sufferings, and which since that time have prevented our regretting them. You know their nature, their object, and their result. You were informed of them last night. You will be more fully so this evening by the organ of the invisibles. I can only say to you that Marcus sits among them, and that he has himself formed their secret council and organized their whole society with the assistance of a virtuous prince, whose entire fortune is consecrated to the mysterious and mighty enterprise with which you are acquainted. I have likewise consecrated my whole life to it for fifteen years. After twelve years of absence, I was too much forgotten on the one hand and too much changed on the other, not to be able to reappear in Germany. The strange life which befits certain employments of our order moreover favored my incognito, and trusted not with the active propagandism which is reserved to your life of brilliancy, but with secret missions which my prudence could execute. I have made several journeys which I will describe to you directly, and since then I have lived here entirely concealed, exercising in appearance the obscure functions of housekeeper to a part of the prince's mansion, but in fact earnestly engaged in nothing but the hidden work, holding a vast correspondence in the name of the council with all the important associates, receiving them here, and often presiding over their conferences alone with Marcus when the prince and the other supreme chiefs were absent. In fine, exercising at all times quite a decided influence upon those of their decisions which seemed to demand the delicate perceptions and the peculiar sense with which the female mind is endowed. Apart from the philosophical questions which are brought forward and weighed here, and from which, besides, I have, by the maturity of my understanding, acquired the right not to be excluded. There are often questions of feeling to be discussed and judged. You may well think that in our attempts abroad, we often find an assistance or an obstacle in particular passions, love, hatred, jealousy. I have had, by the intervention of my son, and even in person and under the disguises much in fashion at courts among women, of sorceress or of prophetess, frequent connections with the Princess Amelia of Prussia, with the interesting and unhappy Princess of Kombach, finally with the young Magravine of Bereath, Frederick's sister. We were obliged to win those women more by the heart than by the mind. I have worked nobly, I dare to say it, to attach them to us, and have succeeded. But that phase of my life is not the one with which I am to acquaint you. In your future enterprises, you will find my trace, and you will continue what I have begun. I wish to speak to you of Albert, and inform you of all that side of his existence which you do not know. We have still time. Give me yet a little of your attention. You will understand how, in this terrible and strange life, I have made for myself. I at last knew tender emotions and maternal joys. End of chapter 33